Welcome to the Speaking Light into Abortion podcast, where I talk about all the reasons it's possible for you to thrive after your abortion. I'm your host, Amanda Kingsley, and two years after my own abortion, I certified as a life coach so I could serve women after abortion in all the ways they've been deserving and lacking for centuries. Consider this your launchpad for finding strength and community in yourselves and in each other. Well, we are actually recording this after a string of episodes I've done just me on my own. So I'm excited to have a guest here. Uh, Today's guest is Mattia Murray, and they actually reached out to me um, in a message at this transition. I was, I might have said that to you, Mattia, that my podcast is in a bit of a transition. I don't remember and I still don't know where it's going. I just roll with things, but it feels good to be recording with a guest. So thank you for reaching out. You, from my perspective, have layers of story that, well, doesn't everyone, but layers of story that um, can and will be valuable to listeners here. Um, So I don't have much to say beyond that, except why don't you introduce yourself in the way that feels right for you today. And then I, as you know, from this podcast, we'll just let you share. And then I may or may not interrupt because I am a chronic interrupter when I get excited about something. And I'm sure our conversation will lead to lots of good places. So why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I, it's funny, I had listened to your podcast and thought like, oh, this is really targeted at women and I'm non-binary. I've been out for uh, coming up on a decade actually. And I've, you know, done some medical transition, et cetera. Um, And being non-binary is a big part of the way I think about myself. And then I heard you say some really gender affirming things in the podcast. And I was like, oh, cool. Like you do have, you know, space for this um, broader conversation, which I love. I love that that exists. Um, So myself, I, I, like I said, non-binary is like a big part of how I think of myself. Another big piece of my identity is being ADHD, both autistic and ADHD. And that sort of combined neurotype and just that experience of living with that you know, my entire life, but really realizing what was happening in my early thirties, basically. And that's a big part of what I do now is help other ADHD folks and especially other creatives like me. I'm also a composer and a writer. So um, those are kind of the, the very broad strokes. And then something else that I wouldn't always put in an intro, but that's relevant for what we'll be talking about is I'm also the oldest of seven. Mm. And both of my parents are from big families. Like I have a generationally, you know, big families. And I've really, um, especially lately, just been reflecting again on how much privilege I've had as literally one of the first people in my lineage with a uterus to be able to make choices about my uterus and how that was just not accessible to even my mom who had 16 pregnancies. So it just, yeah. So (laughs) I'm sure I'll get into that a bit. (laughs) How many more times can I say oof? But it's like, yeah, yeah, I didn't write down those words. I sometimes try and write fast, but being the first in my lineage to have that some choice around what I do with my uterus is 
really big deal. Really big yeah. deal. Um, you also have not relevant to continuing forward except to say who you are but you do you also have a podcast I do yes technically I have two I have one uh, the longer road which is for people with multiple marginalized identities who feel behind in life and I had that for like two years and then a few months ago I started a new podcast called ADHD flourishing yeah and it's getting probably because the title is so clear right (laughs) Um, (laughs) it's like over in in you know just under right around four months I think um with like 15,000 total listeners and like yeah almost six thousand listens in the last month so it's really yeah. like picking up right good momentum. good so i'll link to those for sure um and the world is so searchable now that mm-hmm. if anyone jotted those down i'm sure they can find them and actually somebody who i probably haven't seen since i was eight years old just found me yesterday because she searched audi hd in spotify no saw my podcast and was like how many matias can there be that's so <laughs> wild <laughs> Wow. Really cool. Um, well, if that feels like a good introduction for you, shall we get to sort of some content relevant to abortion and beyond and bodies and all the things? Um, how do you want to start sharing your stories around abortions? Like what, how do you, where do you want to start? Yeah. So I had an abortion in I think the end of 2011, that sounds right. And mm-hmm. I actually, I have, I've always been a big journaler. So I was thinking like, oh, I can like go in the basement and find my box. And maybe wow. I was thinking of maybe <laughs> trying to kind of look, I did not do that, but yeah, I was thinking, I know, oh, maybe I'll try wow. to kind of, you know, look at notes and kind of reconstruct. Cause I, I mean, I remember obviously what happened and I remember the timeline, but I was thinking, you know, I probably have some, some good yeah. notes around this that would be interesting, but also my, my journals are kind of a minefield. Cause I also have quote a long trauma history. So yeah. it's like, anytime I go in there, I'm like, Oh no, I forgot about that terrible totally. thing. That happened. <laughs> <laughs> but cool to even to just remember that. that a part of you process that through writing. Right. Yeah. 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 And then kind of the other big piece of, you know, what it, what's just really been kind of heavy on my mind lately with a lot of the, you know, anti-abortion legislation is just how, like my, that my mom would literally have died in several mm. of the miscarriages that she had wow. if abortion were illegal, because for, if abortion is illegal, then so is miscarriage. So, and she had multiple instances where she needed medical intervention. That's only legal if abortion is legal, like Mm. a DNC. So, you know, just thinking about how, and actually I was in this art therapy class last night. And when I was doing the sort of painting part, what came up for me, I'm about to say something medically gross and triggering if you want to skip ahead 30 seconds, but, um, was, was walking in on my mom mid miscarriage and there was just, it looked like somebody had slaughtered a chicken in the bathroom there. I've never seen so much blood in my life. There was just blood everywhere. And, and she was, you know, like she probably would have died if she hadn't then gone to the hospital, you know, been able to get a DNC. So like knowing that, and that was, I was a teenager at that point, but like that kind of side of it is what I think a lot of you know, and my mom is still anti-abortion as far as I know, because she doesn't, mm-hmm. she literally doesn't understand that that this. was the same procedure. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, she, yeah. she technically knows, but like, I don't think she, I don't think she's really processed like how literally she would have died if yeah. we had the, you know, political stuff that she wants. Um, Any questions I ask you, you can just give a big old pass on. 
But do you remember when that happened, what the impact was for you? Not not just that there's your mom and that's very traumatic, but that you are a human who has a uterus and that that like that connection, that personal connection to like, this is a part of a reality that could happen for people with my body. Yeah, I absolutely. I mean, at that point I was still thinking of myself as cis and I, I knew I wasn't straight, but I was trying to be straight at that point. Like yeah. I grew up very religious. Um, I grew up mm-hmm. in the specifically in the quiverful movement, which is um, if you've heard of the Duggar family, that's their oh. whole thing. So it's this, you know, women's bodies are for having yeah. babies and that's yeah. what they're for. Yes. Um, and I also grew up in domestic violence and so did my close friends as a child. So I just kind of thought like, this is what yeah. families are no pretty different. much yeah. until college. And I started, you know, meeting and dating people who had nonviolent parents. Yeah. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And, and so that was also part of it was there was just this whole understanding that like, this is my future. Yeah. It wasn't just this might happen to me. It's like, this is what is going to happen to me if I don't, you know, make a pretty significantly different choice or sort of like step outside of what I was yeah. raised in, which I, you know, yeah. ultimately did. Um, I also have had a hysterectomy, so I, that, that will not be happening to me. <laughs> me too now. <laughs> oh yeah. That was, oh yeah. <laughs> I'm three weeks out yesterday. Right. Oh boy. Yeah. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, but at that point, there's that reality too of this will happen to me because I haven't yet put together that I can make enough choices that will lead me on a different path. Like that's a big deal. Like that's a very traumatic moment to be like, this is what it means to be me. Yep. And knowing at that point, because of family history that I was probably just incredibly, incredibly fertile because yeah. my whole family is actually two right. of my sisters um, ended up donating slash selling eggs. And one yeah. of them produced like the most eggs in a single session that like that clinic had ever gotten. <laughs> and when I had my hysterectomy, they were like, basically, if at some point in the process, and this is inappropriate, they shouldn't have said this, but they were like, you know, if you do want to have kids, your uterus is like amazing. It's like perfect. And I was like, get out. <laughs> Oh yeah like the the (laughs) Swedish part of our family just they all had like 10 to 13 kids like it was just like what they did so wow I knew that that was like again not just possible but likely yeah yeah and do you remember any level of and we can change subject anytime but do you remember any level of fear that was like I could lose my mom because she's a fertile human you do you know what I mean like that because she is this maternal figure in my life like her destiny is the thing that could kill her does that make sense I might be using the language wrong because no and it was like her whole personality too like that was her thing was like having kids yeah Um, I also I mean part of my perspective now is I think she liked being pregnant because people were nice to her when she was pregnant and my dad was nicer to her when she was pregnant so I think it was like part of how she got her needs met was like literally she got her needs met by being pregnant and in that religious upbringing that was when she was valued right Right. like like I am of value I am 
producing a valuable thing by being pregnant. And then my parents also, so I'm, I'll I'll be 36 this weekend. Mm -hmm. Uh, My parents started having kids when they were, I think I was born when my parents were 24. Uh So they started pretty young and then they had six kids in eight years. So my mom had six kids when she was like close to my age right now. So she still looked attractive. And that was like part of her identity, I think, was being like a hot mom. (laughs) Some people be like, no, I can't believe you have so many kids. Like you look so young, you look so good. Like that whole, she loved that. But you just shared with us that I think you shared that there were multiple miscarriages. Yeah. So there was only one, but there was one like in the middle of the six kids, the first six. And then it was mostly after then. Then she only had one successful pregnancy after that. So, okay. Cause I was thinking like six kids in six years plus miscarriages. But now that I hadn't, I hadn't put that together. Yeah. So she just kept trying basically. Gotcha. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, is there anything else in regards to your mom's experience and the medical procedure of a DNC that you think a listener might want to hear before we move over to your own experience and that impact on your life? Is there is there anything that you feel like someone needs to know about the fact that this is a medical procedure that actually saves lives? Yeah. I mean, and, and so does birth control, right? Like my mom was also on <laughs> birth point. control for four years in there. And it was the yeah. only four years that she didn't get pregnant basically of her, wow. like until she was, I think her, and then, a, then a few years, and then she had a final pregnancy when she was in her early fifties, yeah. um, which is just wild that her, and, and she was like, Oh, I didn't realize I could get pregnant. And we're like, well, had you hit menopause? Like that's how that works. <laughs> it's like Technically. Um, so anyway, the, the, like all of the medical stuff around it um, is not only life-saving, but like to go back to that question of, you know, is this the thing that could kill her? Just the anxiety of knowing at that point, how dangerous this is for your body. Like that last one, you know, it wasn't going to work obviously. Um, I mean, not that it can't, but just that for her body, her body was clearly like, please stop. Like I I cannot do this. Um, And that, I think, you know, and, and having access, especially I I would say for that very last one for her, just being like, oh, okay, this is, you know, this is my body can't do this. This is not going to work, you know? Um, and that also, I think that element of it being so much of her identity and how she thought of herself as valuable. Yeah. I I think about that a lot that like, you know, it's almost like she didn't even make the transition into seeing her value through the lens of being a current mom to like living people. She was like, I have to keep producing babies. <laughs> and that, that was the the valuable thing. Um, so it, it made it harder for her to even like be a present parent for us, which she wasn't really. Um, Cause then she started getting really depressed, I think, cause of in part because of miscarriages. So yeah, wow. it's like, okay, I, I do her life sucks. I know. <laughs> I do have more questions. I'm not ready to move on yet. One yeah. is, do you remember moments where she wouldn't announce a pregnancy? Did she announce a pregnancy? Like, did you know she was pregnant before she had a miscarriage? The only one she didn't tell me about uh, was the first one when I was like four. Okay. Three or so four. do you remember putting together my mom's pregnant, which she's excited about and 
our community's excited about, but that could be her death sentence. Like that could be like, do you remember putting that together? That probably wasn't until my teens, which was, you know, a good, a good amount of miscarriages in, but I would say, I mean, what she was doing with the, the span between kids six and seven, I think she had three or four miscarriages in there. I don't remember exactly like the timeline. Um, but I was like, you know, eight, 10, eight to 12 in that range. Yeah. And every time she got pregnant, she would tell me and she would ask me to pray for the baby. Yeah. So I was part of the like right. spiritual team. Okay. Um, now I have even more questions. I know. Okay. So <laughs> excuse me. Um, when you're a child and the, um, the, uh, what's the word? the conversation, I don't know, the word rhetoric keeps popping in my mind, but sometimes I use words wrong, um, is pray for the baby. And then the baby is lost Mm -hmm. is the jump to, we didn't pray hard enough. I wasn't raised in a religious, um, like that wasn't my childhood. So I'm genuinely like really curious about that moment where a child is like, we didn't pray enough. Like, does that happen? Yeah. Yeah. That's really intense. Especially when you're processing, like, not only is this happening to her, now it's part of my story that I didn't maybe pray enough for this to happen. Yeah. So many layers. So many layers. (laughs) Okay. One last question, I think. Um. Did did you ever feel like your mom or your community um had a conversation around like God's will? Like if if I do bleed to death because I'm of a a desire for more pregnancies, like how did, how does that get balanced in a community like that? Is that does that then become God's will that you yeah. would lose your life to the yeah pursuit of having more children in in the quiverful movement itself absolutely that's the that's the rhetoric most of the people we actually knew were not like that or you know it's it's one of those things where it's like you would never you almost would never say that to someone else you just think it about yourself yeah so you know like I'm sure if a friend were in a similar situation I'm sure my mom would have been like no just you know use birth control or you know just be like don't don't put your life at risk but for herself that just like made sense. And yeah, I, I, I'm sure, I'm sure she would have at least at certain points in her life said it would have been God's will if she had died. Yeah. Yeah. And so you can see how that makes it extra complicated that you would be pro-life, even though the very procedure saved your life. Right. That's like, yeah, this, no, it's this very always mind-boggling. Bo- yes, exactly. <laughs> this always boggles my mind that like, this procedure that saves your life in a pregnancy is not against God's will. Like it's just like my whole brain just starts exploding around. It's because it's not, it's not really about God at that point. It's about the, the bit of patriarchy in which women are objects. Yeah. Like you are just, you are literally, I mean, the word vessel is used a lot. You are a vessel. And I've actually, one of my siblings wrote a one of their grad school thesis play is titled vessel. Um, This is like a word that I heard a lot as a kid, 
was like, you are, you are literally a tool and an object for the purpose of making more Christian babies. Okay. Well, enough about religion. <laughs> I did not do that. <laughs> <laughs> Except that is how I'm going to transition to my next question. If you're ready to share about your own story, mm -hmm. how, what, how did your head turn around um, this idea that I am a vessel this I'm only recording audio but I'm sort of using my hands to say <laughs> I don't believe you are a vessel for for human life to be born but how did your own head turn around like I am a vessel in their view and I and I choose no I choose not to be that yeah. So for me, there were, well, actually my first sexual experience was a sexual assault, unfortunately. Um, so that when I was 18 and so that was like a real, like, first of all, I, you know, got depressed, but also started going to therapy and realized, yeah. oh, my childhood wasn't perfect. Like <laughs> the therapist kept reacting to things I was saying. And I was like, oh, I thought that was I normal. I thought I was here because I was assaulted. And now right. we've unveiled this. Yeah. Started this whole, I mean, it was, yeah, it was a rough, it was a rough time, but I would also say that part of uh, my experience within that was like, you know, the way I'd been raised was basically uh, this whole idea that again, you know, any sexual experience is like tainting you if you're a woman, which I identified as at the time. Um, and I just, I could not accept or believe that. So that was like a piece of, and then also around the same time, I was like, you know what? I've known I was queer for most of my life. Like I knew since I was a little kid, but I, I knew I wasn't supposed to be. And also I'm bi. And so like, I was like, I can date the gender I'm supposed to yeah, be dating right. <laughs> according uh. to my parents. So that, that was another piece of it. And then also realizing that I was, you know, then genderqueer and just this whole, this whole sort of like journey yeah. toward, um, you know, away from this idea of my body as like an object. And, and it really like one of the reasons I was assaulted is because I was literally raised to believe I didn't have bodily autonomy. So it wasn't just, you know, a freeze response, although that also happened. It was also this like, I literally, I was not allowed to make response. choices about my body as a child. I wasn't allowed to say no to touch. Um, we weren't allowed to lock doors. Like we were, we didn't, we weren't allowed to have control over our own bodies. And so that was a, yeah, deep conditioning, um, that kind of kicked in when, you know, someone was demanding and I was just like, oh, that, so anyway, that kind of helped me start to unravel all of that kind of, and again, being, especially being in therapy and having a therapist be like, wait, you, you thought what? <laughs> like, yeah. no, that is yeah. not how that's supposed to work. Um, yeah. So it was like, what? it was a really intense, I would say couple years of, uh, processing all of that. And then kind of coming to this point of being, you know, starting to come out as queer and then, you know, just really realizing that like the way I thought about myself was so objectifying. Like I'd been viewing mm -hmm. myself through this objectifying mm -hmm. lens and then also being, you know, non-binary, but not knowing that my body before I transitioned felt just like someone else's body. Like it yeah. didn't, I was so depersonalized from my experience of my body that there was just this, there was this whole mess of things that was making it so really many, hard. <laughs> many, many, many layers. Yeah, exactly. Thank you for sharing them all. Um, not that any of us understand them all from this conversation, but 
I, I think in conversations like this are so important because you start to go, wait, well, what about that piece? And what about that piece? And I was even thinking, like, I kept asking you all these questions about your experience of your mom's pregnancy. At that point, part of your filter was also being, um, having this autistic lens of the experience and this ADHD lens of the experience and this, so that we, you know, we didn't even touch on that. Like the way you're experiencing it all is filtered by all the very many layers. Um, so I just really appreciate conversations like this for, for helping us see how messy it is to be human (laughs) in a really messy human world. Um, can I just clarify something you said? You said, um, I could not accept or believe that I was tainted. Um, did you mean by that assault, which I'm yeah. so sorry happened to you, but unfortunately is the reality for, for so many humans. Um, yeah. It's also, um, I, I think the one stat I've seen is that 90% of autistic women have been sexually assaulted, like almost all because like it's, it's partly the being raised like I was specifically raised without bodily autonomy on purpose, but also autistic people are used to pushing through and not having their physical boundaries accepted anyway. So there's just this, again, like you said, layered experience of like, of course I didn't. And this like, um, another autistic kind of thing that can happen is not really understanding people's intentions. And so kind of ending up in bad situations because you're just like, Oh, I thought we were just being, nice friendly friends and apparently we're not wow um you remember what in you what voice in you was wise enough or knowing enough to to not accept and believe that you were tainted like at that point your history had been mostly of your religion so what was that knowing that said hold up I don't, this part, I don't accept. I love that way of putting the question because I've done a lot of parts work in the last handful of years. And I do, I recognize that there were kind of two elements that, that fed into that. And one was actually just my autistic sort of part or being, Mm. I mean, it's, it's my whole self, but right. I kind of do think of like an autistic part. That's like particularly the voice for this. And part of that is chills right now. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This sense of justice is part of that. And, and then also just this, like, this doesn't make sense. Like the messages I'm being told don't make sense. And I refuse to accept them. So I had that part. And then the other part, uh, is that I, when I started masturbating regularly, in my yeah. early teens, yeah. um, I, I really deeply felt the, in that embodied experience, which was one of my first positive embodied experiences, you know, yeah. as a person with my childhood, um, I really deeply felt right away that it was not a bad thing or not a problem. Like I just, mm. it just felt so good that I was like, like this, something that yeah. feels this good. Can't be, yeah, bad. it can't be bad. The, what yeah. I kind of, the, the mental gymnastics I did around that was I thought that me fantasizing about women was probably bad. Right. <laughs> I was like, I know that I'm not supposed to be doing that. But other than that, the pure, if I can just not do that, just the pure yes. <laughs> pleasure part of this. <laughs> so I tried to do that. Um, but what was the, the, that kind of came back, I feel like, you know, five years later or so when, when this happened that I was just like, you know, I've been having this positive experience of my own body 
for a long time that I know mm-hmm. is not wrong. Like that I, that I just, I refuse to believe is wrong. Yeah. And that was pretty much what led to this, you know, you know, I'm just like, I'm not going to accept that somebody doing something to me against my will could possibly ruin me forever. Like, how does that, how is that fair? So that's that autistic piece of like that, that yeah. isn't fair. And I refuse to accept that. So this could be way oversimplifying, but I feel like one of the reasons that struck me so much is the autistic part of you almost saved you. Like that part was the hero who came in and said, this is not okay. We're not, we don't do this. We, yes. we, we don't go down this road. That's not I, in I our, think that, yeah. that's not in our biology. <laughs> I think that of a lot of my childhood, actually, like that's something I've kind of processed in therapy. Um, something, so, you know, my six younger siblings, I largely helped raise them. Um, I did a lot of the actual parenting and one of my sisters, uh, one of my siblings said to me at one point, um, we're all okay because you're okay, but I have no idea how you're okay. Cause my parents didn't like me and were pretty mean to me and also just treated me like an adult who was, you know, de facto parenting. And I honestly think a lot of that I had a, I was close with my maternal grandmother, um, but she wasn't around a lot, but I was, I was close with her. Yeah. So she was that kind of adult support for me. But then the other thing is just being autistic and literally just not noticing or accepting or processing some of the mean things that my parents oh. were doing and saying to me, I would just be like, Oh, that's weird. And like, so not, when they say we have <laughs> no idea how you're okay, they're processing that through their lens that doesn't mm-hmm. have the, um, the autistic filter, right? Possibly, Again, yeah. sorry yeah. if I'm using any weird language, but I'm just doing my best here. I don't know if filter is the right word there. Um, those are huge words. Like we're all okay because you're okay, but we have no idea how you're okay. Do you feel like most of them felt that way? Was that like a, yeah, you know I mean, I, mean? I think like, my, my youngest siblings probably wouldn't have, cause the person who said that is 20 months younger than me. Right. So yeah. <laughs> like closer in age and have yeah. more of the same memories or kind of overlapping, uh, experiences. Um, my three youngest siblings, I'm so much of a parent to them that I'm just in the parent category in their brain, I think yeah. like more than yeah. a sibling. Um, and that's something also that we've had to like navigate as adults when I was kind of like, Hey, I cannot be the family de facto therapist for everybody. <laughs> like y'all need your own actual therapist yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't do all of this for, you know, everybody. Um, and I bet if I had two siblings, I might not have even stepped out of that role, but it was just, it was way too much having six people who just like completely emotionally relied on me and had all this trauma as well that they weren't. And you were raised in a world that didn't accept you for who you are. So you've got your own level of like processing and therapeutic work (laughs) on top of trying to help them. Yeah. Yeah. And actually when I, um, so, okay. To kind of like use this little timeline thing. So I had the abortion at the end of 2011, um, started, let's see, I think in 2014, I went no contact with my parents, which I mostly mm-hmm. have been since then, which has been yeah. great. No yeah. depression since then. Yeah. So yay. Wow. <laughs> um, wow. and and then, and it, and also in 2014 was when I was like, okay, siblings, y'all gotta, you gotta get your own help. Like I can't, I can't do ever. And I took a step back from like the sort of emotional support role. 
Um, and then I came out as genderqueer very soon after that. So it's kind of like I needed that space in my yeah. own experience um, to be able to even process what I was going through and what I wanted to call it. Um, but I would say even with the abortion, which I can you know talk about a little bit more, it was actually like a very positive experience in a lot of ways. Yeah. It really like I first of all, I realized I was pregnant like very soon. Yeah. Um, Probably because you're like, super fine tuned to your body. Yeah. At like the six week point, I was just like, oh shit. Like yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. whoops. Um, and so I, I was able to do like the pill, the medical, yeah. you know, and it was, and yeah. it was great. Like it, it was, you know, it was, uh, had cramps and it was, you know, painful, but I basically just yeah. took a few days off and kind of just like hung out. My sibling came out and hung out with me. Um, and it was like, uh, overall, like a really positive experience because I was like, I had thought about, you know, gender and my body and like that I was an autonomous being who was, you know, not going to be a, a baby factory, but to have this, like, I get to make this decision. I get to choose everything that's happening around it. Like I got to choose who was around me. I got to like have all of this autonomy. It may, it was, it was part of what helped me in my sort of gender journey as well of realizing like, oh, okay. Like just because I have this, you know, uterus <laughs> it's like yeah. very ready to go doesn't mean I have to do anything with that and it was actually the first time that I started um thinking of like pregnancy as not an inevitability in my life that it could just purely be a choice and wasn't just a thing that was going yeah. to happen and that I had yeah. essentially no no choice over yeah um our stories are wildly different but what I hear that I personally am resonating with is when I had my abortion, there was this a like deep awareness of my power, right? Like I've made a lot of choices in my life, but no choice until this one has shown me my own power. Like I can choose and that's okay. Like even when other people have opinions about it, like I have the power to move my life in the direction that I want it to move. So for me, there was, my my experience was very positive as well in terms of the actual experience. I did have a lot of grief and sadness afterwards, which is kind of the body of my work. Um, but in general, I think most people know I'm very pro-abortion and I, I did have a very positive experience. Um, but that nothing, nothing up to that point or since has been so eye-opening to the level of power we have in our lives when given the resources to take that power. <laughs> yeah. And I was also in Massachusetts, so it was, and I was on like the state health insurance, so it was, yeah. like, it was free. Like mine was free was, too. Yeah. In Massachusetts. It was great. Yeah. yeah it was so great. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, my brain is going in so many directions because there's so many like good <laughs> kind of juicy topics here. But yeah, that that I absolutely experienced that sense of of power, of autonomy, of just like really starting to process. Wow, I like I can really have a say in in my own body. Which again, as like somebody who was, and I'd been talking about gender since I was eight or nine. I'd been saying, I'd say things like, yeah. I think I have a boy brain or like, which I, you yeah. know, isn't a real, like that's totally. <laughs> not exactly how it works. Well, that's but, you know, how like, your brain saw right, it. I didn't have time. any language for it. And yeah. even in like, 
I had a couple of friends in college who were binary trans. And so I knew like, and I, and I knew trans people as a kid. Like I was like, I, I know that binary trans exists, but I didn't know anybody who was genderqueer or non-binary until my early mid twenties. Yeah. I'd never heard of that. Yeah. Um, obviously now like everybody knows what that is, but like I didn't at that point. And it wasn't yeah, a part of my vocabulary I, when I, I was younger. I would say the same in my twenties. I didn't yeah. really under, that wasn't a topic. Yeah. We and understood. so well, like the, I was just thinking back to like the, and oh, actually I should, I should also mention in terms of sort of story that I'm pretty sure I had a miscarriage when I was 18. Mm-hmm. I think I had an, or I had, After cause I had a, assault. I, it was like in that summer. Yeah. yeah. Like I, I had, well, cause then like after that, I actually then started sleeping with my boyfriend who <laughs> we hadn't been, uh, but I was just like, I need some, I need to like have this be yeah. a choice. And so then yeah. that, so it was wow. probably actually him, but like that um, summer and I had like a very regular cycle, but I had a, you know, one that was really late and then a really heavy period. So yeah. I'm assuming, and I know that it's also quite common, especially when you're young, like yeah. teenagers, um, but also just like a first pregnancy is very common to have a miscarriage. So I, I'm pretty sure that that happened. And thinking back to that time, there's, I mean, I was still in the church. Like I absolutely would have had a kid. Um, and thinking back to that, like I was so grateful at this. I was, I was just beyond relieved. Yeah. Um, just, I mean, like yeah. no part of me wanted to have a kid. Yeah. And again, like, even at that point, I was saying to that boyfriend at the time, I was like, I, I was using the word trans. I was, I was like trying to process gender, but everybody that I talked to would just be like, basically, I don't know what you're talking about because I was at the time I was like, I don't hate my body. I just hate the way people treat it and talk about it. Ooh. Like I didn't mind having breasts. I just didn't like being sexualized for them, you know, and there's all this whole complicated like thing, but you know, like I, I probably wouldn't have had top surgery if people had just been able to treat my body like a more neutral body. Oof. That's a big deal. Yeah. To acknowledge, right? It's like my choice was never about and I this is not the case for all people who of who course. have top surgery or are trans in any way, but um it it kind of reminds me of the abortion discussion around like my shame was not about choosing abortion. My shame came from you. Like my shame came from your attitude toward my experience, not from, now I'm not saying the breasts were shameful, but the same thing, my sexualization of my body didn't come from me. It came from you. Like, yeah, I did. It became problematic, but like, that wasn't because of who I am. That's because of who you are. And I made that choice to not have to face that. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. it absolutely was the right choice in that, you know, yeah, like I totally. feel I, I, I now don't have to think about or deal with that like, part of my experience. And that's yeah. great. Um, but yeah, I think about that a lot that then that and thinking back to that, you know, 18 year old version of me who was navigating, you know, probably a, a very early miscarriage and just being like, Oh, thank God. Like just being just so relieved that I didn't, because I, I, I don't think there's any way I would have gotten an abortion at that point. Yeah. Like I was not yeah. there yet. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Um, I feel like you were on a different trajectory when you 
bounced back to that piece of your story, but I don't remember what it was. Because you you said like, well, another piece of my story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what it was. Um, are there any pieces of your abortion experience today that still pop up for you? Um, maybe stories or thoughts or beliefs or like, I don't know. Do you, do you, other than deciding to come on here and talk about it because mm-hmm. it is a story that matters. Is there any, any times in, and the answer might be no, but is there any times in your life that you notice it pop back in? Um, a lot of my childhood friends who are my age have mm-hmm. either a bunch of kids or, or have kids that are about the age. Like I, I see them and I'm like, oh, wow. Cause I, let's see, I, that would be like a 12 year old coming up on 12 yeah. or, mm-hmm. or no, I guess I, I guess I'll, whatever, but whatever, you know, over 10 totally. <laughs> or whenever they would have actually been born. I actually, um, you mentioned like grief. I was concerned that I would have a lot of grief. Um, and so I actually had kind of, I'd gone into my, uh, Google calendar when I had the abortion and I'd like put in, you know, this would be the birthday. Like I had kind of, and I kind of put in like, um, basically grieving time into my calendar for a few years. I was (laughs) just, this is my autistic brain, I think, but I was just like, okay, on the, on the anniversary, I will like make time to grieve. And I didn't end up needing that like by the time I got there but did you not need it because you gave it to yourself ahead of time or did you know what I mean like maybe and that is such a brilliant move yeah I was just like (laughs) I was assuming this might come up and so I made intentional space for it and then when it came to like the day when I would have been giving birth I was just like oh my god like I have in no shape (laughs) like you know because I was um yeah around like a, a little bit younger, I guess, than my parents would have been when they had me. Yeah. And I look at that and I'm just like, oh, they were not equipped. Like they should have, they should have done five, right. 10 years of therapy and then <laughs> had kids <laughs> and they did not do that. So, you know, I, I knew two things at the time. One, I knew I wouldn't survive the pregnancy. I knew I would kill myself. Like I was just, I was not in a good space. I would have yeah. had to go off my meds. Like I just was not ready to do that. Um, so that was one thing is I, I was still in this like very cyclical depression, um, and men met on meds that I needed, but that you couldn't be on while pregnant. So that was part of it as I was just like, there's no way I will survive this. Yeah. And then, um, oh, what was the second thing I was going to say? <laughs> that I knew I wouldn't survive it. Oh, and that I, and that I knew that I would be just a, an awful parent at that point, yeah. despite any desire on my part to like you know, break the cycle of trauma. And I'll, like, that's how it happens is, you know, be, and I was also the person I was with was very abusive. Mm. Um, and it was actually my worst relationship that I was yeah. in. Wow. Um, so in that case, I was just like, okay, there's, there's no way this can go well. Like, even if I survive the yeah. pregnancy itself, yeah. like, I don't want to, I don't want to like kill myself or, or just be really, really depressed. It's like, it's, bad for the baby. It's bad for their development. Um, you're not like really present. This is not, you know, does not say anything negative about people who experience depression, um, through no fault of their own, but I, I knew that and I could see it coming. And I was just like, I will be as bad or worse than my parents. And well, I don't it's interesting do about your story is a lot of people say that, um, 
And it is true, but you actually had lived experience of parenting. So that was part of you knowing that, like for a lot of people, they're just like seeing like, okay, from what I've seen, I'm going to, this is not the right time to parent, but like you on top of, on top of just knowing that socially from seeing other people walk into parenting, they weren't ready for like you, you knew what parenting was like, yeah. And I didn't have any of the like, oh, baby, that'll be cute. And nice. I was like, baby, yeah. you grew up in your mouth. Like <laughs> <laughs> I knew, I knew how like gross and all encompassing it was and how you don't get to sleep anymore. And you'd like <laughs> never, never deeply sleep anymore because you're just like half awake all the time. Like that, like feeling, um, I just, I knew that. And I was also, I had been in therapy for a little bit at that point, but I was just at that point where I was like really starting to process shit like that really that hard stuff. And I was like, I know that I need to do some stuff for myself. Um, Also, I was heading into I think at that point I was still applying for master's, but I started a master's program that next fall. So again, I I wouldn't have been able to do that. I would have, you know, not gone to grad school. Um, I was just kind of looking at like what that because and that was what the grief was for me, I think was kind of processing okay, I am making this decision for myself, which I was not used to doing. I was used to making decisions for other people and not based on my own needs. So that was a big deal in terms of that feeling of power. And then also just looking ahead and being like, wow, like this is what my life would be. And I think part of my grief was, was grieving for my mom and my grandma, both my grandmas who both my grandmas also had seven kids. Um, and like grieving. And then even just like those friends where I look at them and they had kids really young and they have kids that like are that age. And I'm just looking and I'm just like, wow, like this was your whole life. And I, I know that no matter what they're doing, they made sacrifices and they didn't get to do what they wanted to do or have like their full experience of kind of young adulthood. And yeah. again, some people choose to do that and they genuinely want to, I obviously didn't want to, but even if you want to, our, the way our society is set up, you will be making sacrifices. Yep. And that's because we don't have the support, the appropriate support for parents. Yeah. So just like part of what I was grieving was like, wow, there's like this, partly this version of me that would just be having this very different life. But then also this, like knowing how many people I know who just didn't get to heal and have the time to heal that I've had. And at this point, like I am the healthiest I've ever been. I'm the happiest I've ever been. And I look back and I'm just like, I could have just literally not had any of that and just have a 10 year old right now who I'm sure I would love. (laughs) Yeah. That's the joy. And I'm sure they'd be delightful. (laughs) And they would also have a shitty dad who would still be in my life. Like who I'd still be talking to. Exactly. Like just because you would love them, had you had them doesn't make it the right decision. That's terrible reason. (laughs) Um, Oh, wow. Wow. Um, It does. It's just like, I think. I'm throwing out words that I don't know are true, but my mouth wants to say that the majority of people who have children have not done that work you're talking about. And like, you are a cycle breaker to say like, no, we're not going to just do this. We're like, as a humanity, imagine if 
at least half the people. Okay, at this point, realistically, if a quarter of the people, an eighth of the people were stopping and taking care of what they needed, like how would that change the whole world dramatically? Yeah. And at this point, I I am interested in having uh, potentially, what I kind of have in mind is fostering or adopting (gasps) older siblings. Yeah. So, you know, like say a nine-year-old and a 15-year-old or something, which nobody wants those kids at that point. Like, and, and there's also, I I just want to say, I I know that adoption is a, uh, a very fraught issue and fostering, fostering to adopt is terrible and you should not do that. But just like, Uh, I, I have now put myself in the like position in my life that I know that I can actually be really helpful to really traumatized kids and I can handle it, um, even just in a fostering situation. So again, I'm not planning on doing that anytime soon, yeah. but yeah. knowing that that's kind of the the space I've created, like to me, being dedicated to having a biological child, like I get it hormonally because I had those hormones mm-hmm. and <laughs> my body giving me those messages. But to me, like being willing to spend a ton of money to have a biological child when there are kids out there that are deeply traumatized and just need stability. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and if you can't handle that, then why do you think you can raise your own child? <laughs> but again, yeah. not to say that everybody should do that, that by any yeah. means, but just this, this idea that it's going to be like better and easier to have your own child and like your own biological child. Um, and because I know a lot of people who are like, I can't handle fostering. Like it's too, it's too emotionally intense. And I'm like, totally then don't do it. Like by all means, don't do it. Yeah. And if you're not prepared to do that, if you haven't done your own trauma healing, if you haven't gotten to that point where you could actually be good in that situation, you're going to have stuff coming up with your, with your bio kit. Like that's the stuff that you haven't processed yet. Anyway. And I don't, this is actually not a topic I've like really ever talked about publicly. Here Um, we are, are, which is part of why I wanted to do it. Cause it is like a a part of my story. And it's, uh, I feel like a lot of, you know, non-binary and certainly binary trans people often don't want to talk about this in this way. Mm -hmm. I have this very complicated relationship with my body where, you know, kind of like I was saying, it's like, I don't, I don't really have a problem with any of my body parts or sort of body experience. And I was like, this experience in the world is not working out, but I have this very complicated relationship with my body where like, I'm glad I won't be having biological children but also there's a little part of me that's like, I could have done that. And I would have been okay at this point. Um, I'm also, it's been great not having a period for the last 10 years. Like <laughs> I can't wait. I'm so excited. It's I'm so only, great. <laughs> I'm only three weeks in, so yeah. it hasn't like really hit me yet, but I have so much more energy because I'm not losing blood all the time. Oh my God. I'm like <laughs> so excited for my next decades. Um, yesterday when I was going to my post-op appointment, I passed a huge billboard of these like superheroes I don't know if they looked like superheroes I don't know if they were real or made up (laughs) and it's and I have no idea who sponsored this billboard so it might have been terrible I've no idea but it was saying like um it was a billboard about adopting teenagers and I like spent the next five minutes of my drive just like processing the the gift and the challenge of adopting teenagers yeah Yeah. so it's kind of cool that you just stepped into that part of piece of your story yeah is there anything 
you have not said that you feel like wants to be said. Um, I had a different question for you to close and if we were at that point and now I don't know what it was. So is there anything you haven't said that you feel like somebody needs to hear um, or that you want to voice out loud? I think what I would say is basically anything, and I know that this is a message of yours also, that like anything you're feeling, anything that's coming up for you is valid, is yeah. acceptable. But I in particular want to highlight that kind of gender or body relationship side of things. Cause there are other things besides yeah. being trans or non-binary that affect your relationship with your body, right? Like there's disability, there's, you know, how, again, how you've been treated in the world. There's your, you know, there's like all these things that can make it really complicated to think of your body in a certain way or kind of process how other people are viewing your body and how it should or should not be working. And I just want to say that kind of whatever is coming up around your own, any, you know, anything to do with your like pregnancy or abortion or sort of bodily autonomy yeah. journey, anything around that, that if there's stuff coming up around that, that you, part of my experience was I didn't have language for it. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like I was thinking about it and going, oh no, that's not me. I, I just literally was like confused by my own yeah. experience. So yes. if part what of what is that, <laughs> can we name that feeling? Because I have said that so many times this week, as I process current events in the news, it's like, I, there's a feeling of just being so utterly confused that you don't have words to like yeah. say what you're experiencing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if that's, that's a, happening, that's a real thing like around, if it's happening around your body, your body experience, your, your experience of your gender, your future, like there's so many ways in to this that are, that we just don't necessarily know how to describe and that, yeah, there may be a label or a term out there, but if you haven't heard it, you literally don't know what yeah. you're looking for. Yeah. And so what I would encourage you to do if you're experiencing that sort of depth of confusion is just to keep listening to other yeah. people's stories because yeah. you will hear something at some point where you're just like, that's it. Yes. Um, and that's actually something I've been on the receiving end of recently with um, people, you know, finding the podcast and listening. And just, I've had messages of people being like, not, not just what I'm saying, but they're like this guest that you had on. That's the first yes. time I've heard my exact experience described. Exactly. Like that's my life. And when you, so anyway, I love podcasts for that. Cause you really get to hear, you know, more about I people, know. Uh, but however you like to take things in, just like keep listening to other people's stories. If you're, if you're confused, uh, the other side of that is that you're curious, right? Like that you're, there's something you're looking for and yeah. you can just kind of keep, keep, stay open, keep looking until you hear something where you're like, that's it. That's the thing that I've been trying to describe. Yeah. Yeah. And I just am like noting and wanting to acknowledge that one of the things that comes up around the abortion conversation a lot is that pregnancy and abortion are like undeniably about our bodies and can challenge all of our own thoughts about ourselves, the world's thoughts about ourselves, um, in some ways, like are feeding into stereotypes that other people have and in other ways are challenging. And it's like, I think that is one of the things about pregnancy and abortion that make it so raw 
is that really it puts our bodies and our choices on display because of the sexuality that leads to it and the you know the like the autonomy all of it it's just like our bodies in just making that choice and certainly in talking about it become center in some way it's just like it's very exposing and so that is going to stir up a lot of a lot of thoughts and feelings and experiences around our own bodies and what we think about them and how we want to move forward in the world with them yeah i don't know if that makes sense to you <laughs> totally i actually i i didn't forget i just wasn't thinking of it in this context um i had a poem published in a journal um yeah. called pre-abortion right r-i-t-e yeah. and i can read that it's very short yes please um, <laughs> So this is based on an experience I had. Basically, I was like, I had gone, I knew I was going to be getting an abortion. Um, it wasn't like this day, but I I literally went to this little deli by my house. Um, and I was just having like part of my own experience was I was like, I want to kind of tell someone that I'm pregnant. Yeah. Like not in the context of abortion, not in the like, oh my God, you know, because my friends who I was telling, it was like, okay, obviously I'm, I'm obviously getting, you know, but I want to like, I want to have that experience of someone yeah. like viewing me in this way. That's what this poem is about. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Thank you. Pre-abortion write. In the tiny deli, I choose items I can not afford. Goat cheese, grapes, salami. A party, he asks. Pause. I just found out I'm pregnant. I hold up a jar before he can ask. It's about the size of an olive. Oh, eat whatever you want now. I smile into this window to an alternate oven where I rest until burnt, quiescent, accepting receptacle. Mm. Wow. And that reminds me of the question that I was going to ask you. <laughs> and you just answered it in sharing. I just wanted to hear briefly how being a composer and a writer impacted your healing journey. Like how the creative part of you helped you process all this life shit and beauty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, te yeah. technically art therapy was the first therapy I ever did um, actively. It was, it was on my own, but I had like, as a teenager, I had come across like, oh, these are some art therapy exercises and I started doing them. Yeah. So I would say in general, creativity and the arts have been the single biggest healing thing in my own life in terms of processing, because somatically I had like the trauma in my body was so beyond ridiculous, just like so much. And like, I, there was a period of time where I did yoga re regularly. And every time I did yoga, I cried every single time because every, any time I spent time in my body was just this incredibly intense, yeah. uh, traumatic processing thing pretty much anytime I do any kind of art therapy actively, if I'm like, okay, I'm just like expressing whether it's on my own or with other people, I usually have a big traumatic memory come up. So like, I just mm -hmm. have a long trauma history. Um, you know, and I, I often have to do, have had to do two intakes when I meet with a new therapist or something. Cause like yeah. it, it's too long to like describe yeah. mm -hmm. all of it. So yes, I mean, the arts have been enormously helpful. Um, my first string quartet was in part about depression wow. and sort of like mental health. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I really have 
processed a lot. Oh, I also have a piece about domestic violence. It was commissioned as part of a triptych about domestic violence and a music uh, mm-hmm. composition or yeah, yeah. a composition. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one, like part of uh, that, that particular piece, it's only like five minutes long, but at the premiere, one of my friends came up to me afterwards and was like, so at the beginning of the piece, I kind of leaned down to like mess with sort of like, you know, mess with something on my shoe. And when the piece started, I just like cramped up and I just like sat there for the whole time and it felt like I couldn't move. And I was like, cool. That's kind of what the piece is about. Oh my <laughs> like, God. Wow. That, that's the effect. So yeah. I mean, for me being able to make art, there's like, the, there's process art that we're just sort of making it, you know, just to be in it, have the experience, but being able to create work like that, the one I just described where it actually had the intended effect on the audience, like being able to communicate that wow. I can't communicate that experience in words, Wow! but to be able to have someone, yeah. you know, say back to me at the end. And then one of my other friends, uh, composition friends came up to me after that premiere and was like, how did you do that? Like, how did you create, how did you make me feel so terrible? I was like, well, I I spent a long time on it. You know, that's (laughs) my, I just, I don't know if you heard that, but I tried to open Instagram so that I could tell this story the right way, but it made noise. Um, This week I have filled my, like I've made the choice to fill my feed with stories um, from Palestine and from Israel. And this week I was scrolling and I, we hit like a, a hymn in a temple, I think it was. I, I'm not Jewish. My son, who's nine, almost 10, heard it. And he asked me to play it again. And he said, I feel like they're really hurting and singing about something. And I was like, that's it right there. It's <laughs> like, he has, we're not a very musically inclined family. Um, so it's not like something we've talked about or, but, but he could hear that one little clip and know that like, there was so much more in that music than some notes and some instruments and some voices like that is like a real communication happening in that, in that art. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's okay. That's like the actual final thing I would say. (laughs) There's never a final thing. (laughs) And this is partly my bias because a lot of my training is in somatic things at this point and and body-based things. But I did, I've done about 15 years of talk therapy total. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until the years that I started doing the actually working with my body. I did a lot of, and, and the intellectual, the intellectual processing is very important and it's very helpful. And I, and it was, I needed it as prep because my body yeah. was so, it, there was just so much in there and I couldn't just jump in. Um, cause I probably would have drowned. Like it was really intense, Yeah. But, but once I started actually working with my body and if you're in a good enough place, mental health wise, or have support and you can do somatic processing, like to go back to that, that just like confusion or like you're trying to figure something out in my experience a lot of what I needed to process I did not need to figure out verbally I just needed to let it process through my body and you don't have to figure it out and it's not like you don't have to be able to describe everything intellectually to understand it oh that's so good well thank you for being an example of what's possible um really really appreciate being here and I'm so glad you reached out and this was a really long episode and I'm so excited (laughs) to add it (laughs) um if people want to find and learn more from you what's the best place to do that 
right now it's matiamaray.com, just my name. I'm actually working on a new website that will be up pretty soon called ADHD Flourishing. So after the the current okay. podcast. And so I'll be moving a bunch of like resources and stuff over there. Um, Cause yeah. right now my main website is like, hi, I'm an artist. And also <laughs> <laughs> I do all these other things. Okay. So yeah, I'm splitting that out. Um, and then the, the ADHD Flourishing podcast is, is the most active right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much. Oh, so much. Thank you. Until next week. Thanks for listening. And as always, please consider sharing, rating, and reviewing this podcast. It helps me reach a wider audience and invites more people to thrive after abortion. If you're someone who chose abortion and find yourself struggling, hiding, or wishing you could move beyond your experience, head over to my website and book a free call. We'll talk about how you can start living the life you made your choice for.